Follow along with me beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 2. John writes, On the third day, now this is the third day since his call of, of Nathaniel and uh, Philip. <clears throat> this is the third day. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. That may be the best advice ever given. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. <clears throat> Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Father, we petition you again. We are at a point in time, at a moment in this day, at a moment in this morning where we are again confronted with our desperate need of you. Father, we need you at every moment for everything. And as we open the word of the living God together, we desperately need your spirit to be our guide, to be our interpreter As we attempt to rightly divide this word that it might go out and accomplish all that you have sent it to do. We call upon your spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. You will give clarity of thought to each of us. You will give clarity of speech to me. that you might be honored by our time here this day. Father, we lift our souls to you. We open our hearts to you. Accomplish what you have decreed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I will remind you that this is no ordinary story. In this book that we call the Bible. 
This is no ordinary story that we see in this gospel named for the apostle who wrote it, the apostle John. This is no ordinary story about an ordinary person. There is nothing ordinary about this. This is the record of the life and times of the Lord Jesus Christ who John tells us is the Christ and has written that we might come to know that this is the Christ and by believing that we might be saved. And John is not presenting Jesus merely as this man that he claims to be the Christ. He is presenting Christ with the evidences of the claim that he makes of his being the Messiah. And the evidences in John's gospel are referred to as signs. Simeons. They are pointing to something. The signs themselves don't have significance except for what they point toward. Now they are significant moments in history to be sure. But their significance is not in what is done. Their significance is in who is doing them. And what they say about the one that is accomplishing these signs, that is manifesting, to use the word that John uses, manifesting his glory, elevating him to the status of Messiah, the anointed one, the sent one, the prophet, the son of the living God that Peter would declare in Matthew chapter 16. These signs are in and of themselves parabolic. They are Parables. Spurgeon says all our Lord's miracles were intended to be parables. They were intended to instruct as well as to impress. They are sermons to the eye, just as spoken discourses are sermons to the ear. We see here a snapshot sermon to illustrate a discourse that Jesus is going to give in John chapter 3. John chapter 2 and John chapter 3 are running on parallel tracks toward the same conclusion. And as we come to John chapter 3, our understanding of this sign miracle in John chapter 2 will give us great insight into what we will read in the discourse that Jesus will have with Nicodemus. And the claim that he will make in the end of John chapter 2 is he cleanses the temple and refers to it as his Father's house. <clears throat> Let us look at Jesus' first sign. It is a miracle and a sign of transformation. It is taking one thing from, from one form of existence and turning it into a completely new and different, better form of existence, which in and of itself immediately rings to your ear as a clear depiction of the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. We become a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come never to return again. This sign of transformation that Jesus performs is done at a wedding. It begins with an invitation to a wedding. The mother of Jesus was there. It is in Cana of Galilee. It is in a neighboring town. Jesus began with his own people. If he has a base of ministry, it will be in the city of Capernaum, which is just uh, 10 or 12 miles away from Cana. Very small, very small communities, tight-knit communities. Nazareth was not far from there where Jesus is 
originally from Nazareth and it's and it's at its apex had no more than 500 residents and Cana was smaller than that very small close-knit Jewish community they're at a wedding Jewish wedding was very important it was very it, it was it wasn't necessarily extravagant but it was it was very expressive and it carried much weight and it was one of the most important things that happened in Jewish society and they're going to have a problem at this occasion where Jesus and his disciples are there his mother most likely was was part of the uh, not the wedding party per se but part of the, the the group that is facilitating this wedding it is most likely for one of his relatives and they encounter a problem there is necessity to give attention to a problem at this wedding. Jesus has come to this wedding, performs his first miracle at a wedding, and gives great emphasis to the, the importance of weddings. We have gone over this in the previous two weeks. There's a problem that is brought before him, and it is a problem that many of us today look at and say, well, that wouldn't be a problem. That's a good thing. The wine ran out. And in the previous two weeks we've gone over this as, and, and with as much clarity as we can from now, understanding what, what wine represented, what it meant in their society, how it was made, all of that. I gave you a tutorial on how to make wine. At least that's what I've been accused of. <clears throat> I said, was it clear? Oh, it was a great tutorial on winemaking. That's not what I did. That's not what I did. This was a tremendous problem for this family. In, in this culture, this was grounds for a lawsuit. Call off the wedding and sue the other family for the embarrassment. That all sounds so foreign to us today. But understanding that this was more of a problem than, than we even grasp, and that Jesus is approached with this problem. He's approached with a petition from his mother. Now this is a very significant passage. This passage is used has been used since... Since about the, sometime in the dark ages in, in, in church history from, from the, the time of, of the, the Romanization of Christianity until uh, the Reformation, this idea was, was conjured from this passage that when Mary comes to Jesus, he has to do what she says because she comes and says there is no wine and he has to hop to it and do what she asked him to do. Actually, she brings a petition and says they have no wine. And Jesus responds with a partition. He puts a division. A division comes. A division between the young man that has been his mother's eldest son and has had to take the place of her dead husband. He puts a dividing line this day, at this wedding, in this passage. There is a dividing line between the Jesus that she has always known as her son has now begun his three-year trek from Jesus of Nazareth to Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Lamb of God that will suffer and die to take away the sins of his people. Just what Simeon prophesied in, in Luke's Gospel. He is now revealing his Messiahship and he is revealing this even to his mother that from now on, her relationship to him will be the relationship between the Messiah and a woman that must be saved like every other person by Messiah. They are not equals. They are not on par. There is a partition. T 
peace ego kaisu. What does this have to do with you and I? This is a problem that you all have with this wedding. It is not a problem that I must solve. Now, something happens as he says, what does this have to do with you and I? My hour has not yet come. What is his hour that is coming? In chapter 7 and verse 30 and chapter 8 verse 20, chapter 12 verse 23 and 27 to 28, chapter 13 verse 1, chapter 17 verse 1, Jesus uses this same expression, my hour has not yet come, my hour, his hour, and it is always referring to the cross and the hour of his sin bearing. One commentator says that when he refers to his hour, he is speaking of the hour when he will be given over to the will of men for a brief time. In the providence and foreknowledge of God, he will be handed over to the Jews to be crucified at the hands of sinful men. This is what Peter proclaimed in the first post-Pentecost sermon. You, by the hands of evil men, crucify the Lord of glory. At that moment, the hour of his suffering at the hands of men will be followed almost immediately by the hour of His exaltation. Never, never, ever to wane for all of eternity. We're not waiting for Him to come and be King, friends. He is on the throne as we speak and has been since that day. We are waiting for His revelation to all of the universe, to all of the doubters, to all of the sinners who in this life doubted. Everyone that has gone into eternity now knows without a doubt that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. Every person that is in eternity, that has left from this life into the life that really matters, into eternity, everyone knows that He is the King of God's kingdom. But those that are alive and deny it, will one day have to face the reality that this is the king. They will cry out for the rocks to fall on them to save them from the face of him who is coming in God's wrath. He tells her that my hour has not yet come. And John throws that in there to keep us asking, what is this hour? And if we focus more on what John says here than what he intends, then we're going to get caught up in this, well, what did his hour have to do with that? I don't know. I've given you a couple of implications as to what it could have meant. But the interesting thing is, two interesting things happen here. He says this to her, and then in verse 5, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay, I don't know what he's going to do, but he's never had a bad idea. Whatever he does is going to be oh, it's better than what I could do, so do whatever he tells you. Maybe he'll fix it, maybe he won't, maybe he'll try to placate the family. I have no idea what the solution is, but I can tell you this, she had no idea he was going to do what he does. Nobody expected this. So in his God-like or godly wisdom, in, in the wisdom of God, Jesus looks at this problem and he comes up with a solution with a purpose. There's a solution with a purpose. Verse 6 says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. John didn't have to say all of that. John could have said they had six stone water jars. They filled them with water. 
But John understands under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this is a sign miracle, that he is pointing to something. This is a, a, a sermon, a visual sermon as Spurgeon put it. There were six water jars, stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Jesus sees an opportunity at this wedding to manifest what he has come to be as the Messiah. The fact that they had these Jewish water jars there for the Jewish, these water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. Jesus is going to give an object lesson to these people. And he's going to tell them what you and I need to know very often and need to remind ourselves of. We must be thinking people. We got to think. We have to think. We have to take, understand, and apply this book. We have to think. We must be thinking people. What happens very often and what happened by the time that, that this, this Jewish religion was being lived out, This had turned into something it was never intended to be. But in its beginning, it began as a sincere gesture, but this sincere gesture became law over time. As a tradition. It became a tradition that we, they could not break. They referred to it, as we read from Matthew 15 last week, they referred to it as the tradition of the elders. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? The tradition of the elders means nothing in comparison to this book. Whoever the elders are, whatever the traditions are, this book means something. This book matters. It was a sincere gesture that became a law. Much like what happened in Judges chapter 8. After Gideon was called as a judge, Gideon delivers the Israeli people. They defeat the Midianites. You remember how many Midianites there were? We don't know. It, says like they were the, it was like the sand of the sea when they looked out. Gideon went with 300 men with some little, uh, some little water pitchers and some, and some torches. I remember as a kid hearing about Gideon and the torches and the water pots and, and, and when they broke them, it, it created this visual effect on the side of the mountain and it scared them all to death. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. God put him up there and made him do something absolutely silly that, that had very little meaning to what it did except that it rendered them incapable of taking any credit for what's about to happen. He could have sent 300 men up there armed with swords, spears, whatever, and had them descend on there, and they could have wiped out everybody. I mean, David had some cats that were killing a thousand people at a time by themselves. Get four or five of them dudes in there, you'd do some damage. Didn't do that. He sent them down there to do something that was utterly impossible. Just do what I tell you to do. Why? Because the battle belonged to the Lord. Gideon wipes out the Midianites. He tells them all, listen. Bring all of the earrings that you took out of these men that we just killed. They bring the earrings. They put them. He put down a, a, a blanket or a sheet. They, they piled them up. It was 1,700 shekels of gold. They took that 1,700 shekels of gold and they made an ephod out of it. An ephod is really a, like a vest. But they, they, they made a vest that, to be worn by a man and they, they made it ornate with the gold that they took from the earrings. And it was... Gideon probably had in mind with the idea that it would be something that would be a memorial of what God had done for them. It says that the Israelis began to whore after it. They began to honor and to put more, to put more of their praise on that vest and what that vest did for them rather than to give credit where the credit was due. It was a sincere gesture that became something it was never intended to be. 
The same has happened in this passage with the Jewish rites of purification. God told them that they he, he, he's told them at various times that they were to, to clean themselves with, with, with clear water when, when someone had what they would refer to as leprosy. They, they were to stay separated from the people until the spots went away, and then they had a seven-day purification. And in that day of time of purification, they had to take a bath at a certain time, and, and the water wasn't doing anything necessarily for them physically, it was a spiritual symbol. That's what the Jewish rites of purification, the, the, the original. But what God intended for them was to, to observe that they needed to be cleansed in order to come into His presence and they turned it into a law that you can't be right with God if you don't do things the way that we do things. Sound familiar? It's a sincere gesture. It begins with great sincerity but very quickly it becomes a law. Well, if you don't do it the way that I do it then you're doing it wrong. Sometimes that's true. Not always. When what we do comes from this book, and it is clearly outlined in this book, yeah, the book is right. We're not right. We're doing what's right because the book said it's right. When we turn it into we're doing it right and it's right because we do it, and if you don't do it the way we do it, then you're doing it wrong because we did it and we did it right. When that becomes the issue, you're in the same position these people were. A sincere gesture had become law. In uh, Second Chronicles, I think chapter 4, in the record of uh, Solomon building the temple, they built the, the, uh, the brazen altar. It was a brass or a bronze altar. It was 30 feet square. 30 feet square. Chad's starting to mess with some uh, making stuff out of metal. You imagine making something 30 feet square out of bronze? No, I don't even understand how they did that. That was the first thing they made. Then he made what's known as the bronze, uh, the, the, the laver. It, it wasn't bronze. It says it was cast metal. It was steel. Uh, some, of your, some English translations call it a sea. Well, it was a big water bowl. It was 20 feet square. It was a hand breadth thick. The steel was four inches thick or so, give or take. Held 3,000 baths. That's... Uh, I forget how much, how big that is. It's somewhere to the tune of 18,000 gallons. That was filled with water for the purification uh, rituals and rites in the temple. That was never intended to be in a home. Now they've got it in the home. They've taken it from the temple. They put it in the stone jars rather than the ceramic jars because the stone jars were less... Uh, permeable and they had water that they could use for these Jewish purification rites. Jesus looks and he sees what they have done and what they have taken these sincere gestures and they've turned them into a law unto themselves and he says I'm going to take this moment to, to create a picture that they will never forget that I have not come to, to put a stamp of approval on what they have been doing. I am bringing something newer and better than they ever dreamt would happen when Messiah comes. I'm not coming to accommodate them. Remember, they always wanted him to come and do for them. In John chapter 6, they got all excited when he took a lunchable and fed 5,000 men and their families. And they followed him all the way around the Sea of Galilee and said, Hey, Rabbi, what you doing over here? He says, You're not here because you think I'm the Messiah. You're here for a free meal. And he did not entrust himself to them. As we'll see at the end of this chapter, this begins right now in his ministry. 
He says, there is something far beyond what you expect from me. You have your own expectations of God. Friends, how many times have you ever prayed and, and pled with God to make a provision for you in your life that you were desperate for and He did it exactly the way you thought He was going to do it? How many times has that happened? Well, there are not going to be many of you stand up and say He did it just like I asked. I've given up telling Him how to do it. Lord, I have a need. I don't even know what to suggest. He's coming to these people and saying, what you have expected, what you have demanded, what you have concocted is not the reality. It's far greater than that. You have so many today that want to tell people that Jesus will make your life wonderful if you just try and just let him into your life. Friends, I'm going to tell you that the gospel says that what Jesus Christ brings into your life is infinitely better than anything you could ever have in this life. There weren't enough amens to that. Maybe I didn't say it clear enough. When the Lord Jesus Christ invades and takes over your life, there is infinitely more blessing than you could ever have physically in this world. Because there is coming a day where we're going to step into eternity, which is, which is a concept we can't even grasp. Nothing you've ever seen, nothing you've ever known did not have a beginning and an end except for God. We're going to step into a time that has no end and had no beginning and this life is what you're living for? Paul says, even as believers, if we take all that the Bible says and we apply it to our life and there is no resurrection that we believe only for this life, we are the most pitiful people on the planet. That's what Paul says. Jesus says, what I've come to bring is far more than you ever could have anticipated. What Jesus Christ has come to bring into your life is more than you ever would ask for if you had the opportunity to ask for it. They have these Jewish jars of purification. And I've told you what they've done. When, when they're asking Jesus in Matthew 15 about washing their hands, they're not talking about going to the sink. My kids come in from outside look like they've been playing with a hall. Go wash your hands. We're going to eat. And you ain't eating with them hands. That's not what they're talking about. They're not talking about getting some, some dial antibacterial soap, clean them up, get some hand sanitizer. He's not talking about that. They're talking about rinsing their hands. They rinsed them, then they rinsed them, then they rinsed them again, then they rubbed them together to make sure that the demon ship got off of their hands so that they didn't ingest them. Superstitious stuff. Man, religion is superstitious. I told somebody this morning, the most superstitious people I've ever met are... Roman Catholic Cajuns. And it's not the Cajuns, it's the Roman Catholicism here. They're, they're believing anything but the truth. Give them some crazy thing to believe. They're going to believe it. That's, how, that's what religion does to people. You know people that follow these charismatic trends that run around, there's a demon behind every bush. Everything's a demon. We're going to cast them out. Man, he didn't give you permission to do that. He didn't give you authority. He didn't give you... There is no, nothing in here that tells you to go around casting out demons. So preacher, you're saying there aren't demons? That is not what I said. But they're far beyond your ability to walk around controlling them. But these are the same people that think that they have God on a leash. Two or three of us get together, we agree, we pray God has to do it. Well, if you've got God on a leash, a demon is simple. Well, no amens there either, but <clears throat> maybe I'm talking too fast. Okay, an object lesson in verse 6. These stone jars that represent what you think makes you right with God. What you think represents you being what is necessary for you to make it into God's good favor. 
Actually, if you earn it, it's not favor. It's a reward. It is award. You've earned this. Jesus is going to take those meaningless stone jars and fill them with greater than they ever anticipated. Not just wine. He's going to fill it with good wine. He's going to fill it with, MacArthur says, it would be like Eden wine. Because he's going to bypass all of the fermentation process, all of, all of the, the, and fermentation is really just things that are rotting. He's going to bypass all of that and he's going to instantaneously change it. And nobody is going to recognize when he did it. But everybody will know that he did it. Does that sound familiar in your life? You don't know when God turned on the light in your own heart. But friends, if you came to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, everybody knows that it happened. And he filled you with far better than you even asked him for. We come to Christ, just to save me. Oh, I'm not just going to save you. Kill the fatted calf. My child has returned. That's what we receive. Out with the old, in with the new. Goes from dirty, unpurified water to good wine. He takes them from a position where they had to work for it and says, now enjoy the rest in me. Takes them from an old creation to a new. I said this is a solution with a purpose. In verses 7 and 8, we see an obedient response. 20 to 30 gallons. You understand that he made more than they would have needed to begin this wedding, and this is at the end of the wedding? Some say he made this much because the bride and groom would have had that to go and sell to, to, in, the, in the marketplace. They would have had, uh, the, or, or to keep it around, and, and, and it would have been something that they, every time they, they, they used it at a meal, they could tell people about what Jesus did at this wedding to further his, uh, his announcement as Messiah. I don't know. I just know he... In my life, He blesses me with far more than I ever could ask for and usually far more than I need. Amen. And what they do here, he, he incorporates these men into the miracle. You know, Jesus could have just said, hey, go get, go get some out of that jar and bring it to the head waiter. He didn't need anybody to help Him do this. It's not that He said, you know what? I, go get some water. I'll think of something. No, no. He knew what He was going to do. Fill them with water. Look what it says they did. They filled them to the brim. You know what that means? <laughs> filled it to the brim. You know when your kids fill a glass with something, it always spills off, the, a little bit spills over because they filled it to the brim. They filled it to the brim. All the way. There was no room for anything else. Part of the reason that it tells us they filled it to the brim is so that nobody could come behind and say, well, you know, they put some water and he put the rest. He went and found some wine and put the rest. No, it was full of the brim. There was nothing else that could fit in there. Friends, when you come to Christ, you are full of the brim with your sin. You are born, a natural born enemy of God. The Puritans would say that you are the would-be murderer of God when you are born. You are filled to the brim. And what Christ is about to point out and, and, and as an object lesson here, what He is going to, to do with these men have filled it to the brim, He's going to fill it to the brim with new wine. And friends, when Jesus Christ came into your life, He didn't come a little bit. You didn't get a smattering of Christ. You didn't get a, a sprinkling of Christ. You got all that there is to get. You can't have anymore. 
You don't need to work up anymore. You don't need to do things to get a little more. You've been filled to the brim. Or you have none at all. In fact, you're filled to the brim with one or the other. You're filled to the brim with your sin and your desire to live life your own way or you are filled to the brim with the grace of Jesus Christ and you want His glory in all that you do. You say, but preacher, I struggle. Yeah, yeah, that struggle's new. That struggle is new. That struggle comes when this change happens. There is no struggle in your life as an unbeliever. You struggle with not getting caught by people that can see you. You don't struggle with sin that you don't have to tell anybody else about because it's in here. And you get on your face before God and you, and you quote the psalmist from Psalm 25. I lay my soul open to you. Please remember your mercy and your grace. But that struggle is new. That is not a natural born struggle. That is a struggle that is born from above. He brings these men in and makes them part of his working. Just like you and I. Jesus Christ doesn't need me here today. You don't need me here today. What you need is somebody that God has called to stand in this place. It doesn't have to be me. And the only reason that we need somebody called by God to stand in this place is because this is His design. This is how He does it. And He does it that way because He's chosen to do it that way. If Abraham is the father of the faith, who brought the gospel to him? His dad was an idol maker in Ur of the Chaldees. In Ezekiel, God tells him through Ezekiel that your father was a Hittite and your mother was a, a, a Hivite, an Amorite. You're of pagan birth. I came along and rescued you. You didn't find me. Same is true for you if you're in Christ here today. You didn't find him. He found you. And friends, you know where he found you? He found you running away from him. He didn't find you around. Man, I'm kind of lost. I'm, I'm looking for a better way to go. No, no. No, no. The heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. Who can know it? That heart is running away from God. And He invades your life and turns you around and says, Look at me. Come to me and be saved. He didn't need these men. But He uses them. In verses 9 and 10, we have an objective review of what happens here. Verses 9 and 10. He tells them, draw some out. They fill it to the brim. He tells them, draw some out. Take it to the master of the feast. This would have been like, uh, he's the master of the feast. There's, you know you have a wedding planner? Maybe you don't. Some people do. I had two of them at my daughter's wedding. Actually, I had one in a surrogate. But Dawn stepped in. If you need a wedding planner, Dawn will do it. She doesn't mind being a geek and aggravating people and all the stuff that they have to do because there's a goal to be achieved, isn't it? And sometimes having somebody that's a little bit outside of that circle and outside of that tension to say, hey, we need to step in. You've got to take this step. You've got to move here, especially for that bride and groom. Somebody's got to tell them every step to take. Sometimes you've got to tell them to breathe. They don't know what to do. You were here at the rehearsal. We had a rehearsal? What? They have a master of the feast, somebody that's in charge, somebody that, that's charting the way through this. Bring this to the master of the feast. Everything has to go through him. He has to okay everything that happens here. So they took it to him. Look at verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water become wine. Wait a minute, I missed something. When, when did it become wine? We don't know. 
Was it in the jar? Was it when they put it in the jar? These guys poured it in there. They knew it was water when they put it in. They knew it was water when they took it out. They bring it to the head waiter. He tasted it and it is now water that became wine. When did that happen? In the white spaces in there somewhere. But look at what he says. This is an objective review. He knows nothing of what's going on. He knows nothing of the problem. Evidently, he doesn't even know that they had run out of wine. This is all done before he knows about it. He is an objective reviewer. He has no skin in the game. Between verses 7 and 8 or 8 and 9, the water has become wine. He did not know where it came from. Although the servants who had drawn the water knew. His reaction tells us what happened. He tastes it. He tasted the water that had become wine. The next thing he does is he calls the bridegroom. And he says, this is the way you're supposed to do this, kid. I don't know if you messed up or if you showed off. I don't know what's happening here. But everybody. Your kids ever come to you and say that? Oh, but mom, everybody's doing it. This is one of those times. Everybody serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. This is late in the feast. Everybody has, has had their good time. Now you're just bringing out, you know what it is at your house, bro. If you get people to come over and you don't cook enough for them, like if my family comes to your house, you have no clue how much you need to cook. And let's say we come to your house and there wasn't enough. You only cook 45 hot dogs. <laughs> Mr. Kenneth, if I'm lying, I'm dying. <laughs> If we run out of pancakes, if we run out of hot dogs, if we run out of spaghetti, you got some ham in the refrigerator, right? Got some leftovers from earlier in the week. I need to get them out of here. That's the kind of thing that goes on. We, we, we've gone through the best, and now we just have some filler to finish up. Maybe it's kind of like giving them something that's not so great so they finally go home. Maybe that's part of, of the idea. I don't know. But he said, everybody serves the good first and then they bring out the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. <clears throat> Friends, when God began, when God began his rescue mission that we know of as the gospel, he didn't give them the best. He gave them better news than they'd ever dreamt of, but the news kept getting better and better. And better, he told Adam that in the day that you eat of it and you're dying, you will surely die. And Adam did not die that day. Adam was reconciled to God. and He lived in an... In an the only one that ever knew how much man lost in the Garden of Eden was Adam and Eve. Adrian Rogers says that Cain and Abel were out playing one day and they found, came up to this wall. And Cain said, hey man, boost me up. I want to check this out. So Abel picked him up and he looked over the wall and he said... What's over there? He said, man, you ain't going to believe it. It's a garden. There's no weeds in it. There's just fruit everywhere. We got to tell dad. So they run back and they tell dad, 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 they finally catch their breath. So we found, we came to a wall and we looked over a wall and there's a garden over there. We need to move over there. We need to move there. We don't even have to work. And he says, oh yeah, boy, that's where we used to live. That's where we, where we used to live. What, what, what happened? He said, oh son, your mom made us out of the house and home. <laughs> the only ones that knew what they lost for Adam and Eve but then the Lord came to Abraham and he says listen 
If you obey me, I'll give you children like the stars in a land called possession of your family for eternity. And I'll make you my people. And when Jesus Christ comes, he says it's even better than that. Not only can man be reconciled to God, but you can become not only my people that have to have this burden of, of working to keep it, but I'm going to come and I'm going to do all the work for you so that you become my people and you rest in me. He saved the best for last. In fact, if we want to be completely honest, the best is still yet to come. You have kept the best for last. He says, you've kept this, the best wine, the good wine you've kept until now. This is wine, friends, that has been born again from above. This is not just grape juice. This is not just of the best grapes. This is not the best wine that was at least 40 days old and less than 3 years old that had been mixed to perfection. This was the wine that only God can make. This was a provision that only God could have made for them. And it's pointing to a provision that only God can make for you. And friends, it's a provision that you would never ask for from Him. It is being born again from above. It is an unmistakable provision. But it comes in His time. It comes in His time. Let's try to wrap this up. You've seen an invitation to a wedding. We've given attention to a problem. We've seen him provide a solution with a purpose. Verse 11, he comes to a conclusion for his glory. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. We see proof. We see an unveiling. And we see the faith generated in the hearts of these men as they see these things happen. The proof is a sign. This is the first of his signs. John said he did more miracles than the, the details of which the books in all the earth couldn't contain. But this is the first of them. This is the first thing that he did. This tells us this is not something that Mary saw happen every day in her home. He wasn't doing miracles as a kid. John said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... With Jesus' testimony involved that this is the first of his miracles. This, the first of his signs. Friends, do you understand that he, he could have just declared it? You know, he could have just stepped into time. He could have walked onto the scene. He could have done like John the Baptist and just walked out of the desert. And could have declared his messiahship and demanded obeisance. He could have come out and demanded that everyone obey him. He could have, and he would have had authority to kill them for not doing it. He does not owe anyone an explanation. How many times have you told your kids, do it because I said so? Did you have right to tell them that? Right, you had right to say that. How much more right does God have to say, do what I said? This is what I said, do it. Don't argue with it. Don't fuss about it. Don't fool around with it. Do what I said. He could have done that. But, he remembers our frame. The psalmist says he remembers that we're only dust. And he graciously and tenderly proved himself. And he leads us to believe in him and be saved. He provided this proof. 
And this, this sign was an unveiling. It says he, he manifested his glory. <clears throat> he unveiled who he is. He clearly made known that his claim to them is true. That he is the Messiah. He does something that only God could do. It wasn't a parlor trick. Like the guy straight lengthening people's legs that we looked at last week. And, and saw Sunday night. It was no parlor trick. He took a pot full of water and made it a pot full of good wine. If you were going to make good wine, it would take 180 days to three years time to get it right. And then you have to mix it right. And in the mixing of it, that's when the problems came. Because if you didn't mix it right, now you've got to add more and more. But these things were filled to the top with good wine. It was something only God could do. There was no oblique possibility that this could have happened any other way. He gives undeniable, inarguable revelation to these men. And we see the best response comes from his disciples. It doesn't tell us that the men that carried, notice it doesn't say the servants who knew believed. It says that his disciples believed. His disciples believed in him. The word would better be translated into or onto believed unto him not merely just believed in him that they believed something about him they cast their their entire eternity upon him we believe unto you we believe that you are the messiah we give ourselves to you in in full faith and obedience Amen. they made it personal to them Not merely a recognition of facts. This is a full embracing of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what we see from these disciples. Let's take a couple of, uh, make a couple of conclusions here. This sign of transformation that we see from Jesus in turning this water into wine. Once we get past all of the, the superficial concerns about whether it was wine or not, it was wine. Don't miss the point of the passage because of, of some sincere gesture that has become a law in our extant Christian land today. But let us not overlook the, the cultural clarity here. The old covenant was never an end in itself. When God came to Moses, it was never an end in itself. They says, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. But they could not do it. They were sincere in the beginning, but very almost immediately after they proved that they couldn't do it. The old covenant was a means to the Father's end of the salvific work of the Messiah on the cross. All of those lambs, millions of lambs, millions of lambs, millions of lambs, rams, bullets, pigeons, Innumerable animals all pointing to one all-sufficient sacrifice that would be the salvific work of the Messiah. There are three pictures in, in this, really in, in, this, uh, in this sign. It's picturing a new birth, picturing the new covenant, and picturing a new joy in Jesus Christ. The new birth, being born again from above. We need to be transformed into something that we are not in our natural state. We need to be born again from above. It is something that only God does. It is something that only God can do. It is, a, it is 
a sovereign work that he does. So many people want to try to tell you how to be born again. The Bible does not give you those clues. Nicodemus asks specifically, how do I do that? He says, Spirit does it. When the Spirit does it, you know he did it. Just like this wine. That water didn't ask for anything. Those guys just say, okay, Mary's tall hog at the trough at this wedding. She said, do whatever he says, and we're going to do it. We just fill it, fill it up, they're full to the brim. Now what? Take some of the head waiter. All right, whatever you say. Now it's wine. What? Don't know when it happened, but we know that there's only one explanation for how it happened. It pictures the new birth. It pictures the new covenant. The old covenant was on works. You have to work to keep it. you got to work to get it, work to keep it. You know what the new covenant is based on? I told you this morning, it's the most important word in the New Testament. It's the word grace. Unmerited favor. Paul says that now that we've been justified in Jesus Christ in, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, we now stand in grace. Our standing before God is in the position of grace. We didn't get ourselves here. We can't take ourselves out of it. It's ours. He gave it. The new covenant. Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. All of you who have worked so hard to try to earn some position before God. Come to me and rest. Enjoy. And then a new joy. You can go to Psalm 9. First two verses. He's... he's the, the psalmist is talking about his, his great joy of, of having God as his, as his Savior, but it's still something of a separated joy. Friends, in Christ, we don't need a priest. We don't go to a priest to go to God for us. We don't go to a priest who, who brings our sacrifice to Him. We have one high priest. You know where He is? He's not here. He's in heaven. He's at the right hand of God right now, interceding on our behalf. Philippians 4, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. You, you rejoice in the Lord. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your situation. 2 Corinthians 5, I think, is the hope diamond of the, the, the entire Bible. We all know 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Friends, verse 21, Paul says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. Most people that I've ever heard <coughs> preach the gospel want to focus very much on hell. And you would think from that perspective that he would say he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might escape hell. That's not what he says. He became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what the Bible says about you, believer. God looks at you and he sees the very righteousness of God and you say, but I didn't earn it. You're right. saved you he said the old is gone this new has come never to leave again friends when Jesus turned that water into wine it could never go back to being water again it was only ever from then on good wine 
when you have been changed by Jesus Christ, there is a forever new you. We must be transformed by Jesus Christ. But not merely to something better. It's not that He takes us and, well, you're a B student, I'll just give you a, I'll mark you up to an A+. He just grades on a curve. It's not that. Not that He says, well, you're almost here, I'm just going fin to finish up the, the little bit that's not quite right. No, no. He comes and says, you cannot come to me like you are. I'm going to make you into something completely different. The old has gone, the new has come. Does that day come in your life? I didn't say, have you lived a perfect life since the day that you claimed faith in Jesus Christ? I said, are you different? Friends, when you come to Christ, you don't come, I hope you don't come thinking that you just need a renovation. You need somebody to help fix a few cracks in your life. What you need is a transformation that only the Lord Jesus Christ can accomplish it. And He does it for all that come to Him in repentance and faith. And the one thing that you can know for sure and for certain that whether it's a head waiter at a wedding or whether it's the clerk at the grocery store, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the world cannot miss it. Because it is that much of a dramatic, dynamic, eternal change in your life. That is His miracle of transformation that we see in turning the water to wine. As He transformed you. If he is not, then you have some business that you need to do with him. You need to recognize your sinfulness, recognize that he is the only Savior, and you turn to him for what only he can do for you. Turn from your sin, turn to Christ, and the only way that you're ever going to do that is if you believe in him. Stand, we're going to pray. appreciate your attention today. This is a lot for me to unpack and a lot for me to unload. And I still feel like we went too quickly through it. But you need to recognize that these are not just small vignettes of, of time in Jesus' life. These are the signs that the Holy Spirit has had John record for us. He is the Christ. And it is in Him that you believe. And in believing you can be saved and become one of God's kingdom children. Outside of that, you are in your natural state. Heaven help you. Father, we thank you for the time you've given us this day. I thank you, Lord, for the clarity that your word brings to us, even as we unpack it and see how much your spirit has recorded in so few words. I pray that you will help us to see the greatness of the salvation that has been purchased for us in Jesus Christ, that has been provided for us eternally through your plan. And I pray that it will, it will be something that you use, Lord, to stoke the fires in our heart to be more vigilant in our attempt to walk in Christ's likeness and to be salt and light in this world. And that in all of these things that you would be glorified to the utmost. I pray it in our Lord Jesus' name. Amen.